Welcome to $100 Plus Mileage, the podcast about the New Hampshire legislation that might not make the news, but could definitely still impact you. So far this year, we've talked about the fine for littering, ranked choice voting, driver's ed, and much, much more. We break down the unbiased facts, pros and cons, and tell you how you can get involved. I'm Mike Dunbar, content editor for Citizens Count. And I'm Anna Brown, director of research and analysis for Citizens Count. Mike, today we're talking about the bill to create a right-to-know ombudsman. And I'll be honest, I picked today's topic partly just because I love the word ombudsman. (laughs) It's actually also an old Norse word, like back to the Vikings, and it means representative. So I'm especially happy because my family is Swedish and also because I love the idea of like this Viking ombudsman who, you know, he's like the... He, he carries around his books and he's like the scholarly one. He's like, no, guys, we, we can't just pillage. We have to go about this the right way. <laughs> yeah. That's just my imagination. We can we can all agree that an ombudsman is a great word. But before we start talking about what an ombudsman is, we should talk about what right to know is because that yes. uh, certainly has been a big issue in New Hampshire. Yeah, and that's really the heart of this issue. So New Hampshire Constitution guarantees a right to access government records and meetings. And then the state's right to know law puts this into practice. If an official blocks access, however, a citizen has to file a lawsuit to resolve this complaint. Right. So it's all about transparency. And there are many examples of citizens, journalists, and advocates using the state's right-to-know law to uncover certain official misdeeds. So, for example, the ACLU of New Hampshire and six New Hampshire news outlets sued under the state's right-to-know law to reveal a list of law enforcement officers with credibility issues, and that's called the Lori List. In another recent example, Tara Gunnigal and John Pearson of Web used the state's right-to-know law to uncover an illegal sale of public land to the town treasurer. The Loreless lawsuit took more than three years to resolve, while Gunnigal and Pearson worked more than a year to uncover the truth. And they didn't have all, all the backing of, the, you know, you think the ACLU and all those newspapers, all the resources they must have poured in. Right. So most of your average citizens don't have the resources or the will to carry on a case for a year or more. And to be fair, state and local governments also have to foot their side of the bill, which can be hours upon hours digging through records and money to pay lawyers, and it can be a very complex process. Right. So back in 2017, the legislature established a commission to study processes to resolve right-to-know complaints, particularly dealing with this issue of high costs to citizens. They ultimately recommended a new office to handle the process outside of the courts, and that's where the right-to-know ombudsman comes from. So since 2017, the legislature has considered and rejected several bills to establish the office of a right-to-know ombudsman. This year, the bill is called HB 481, and it seems like it might actually pass this time. So Anna, how would this ombudsman work. Ombudsman. Love the Ombudsman. word. Under HB we'll 481. Say it as many times as, well, as, many can. Times as possible. <laughs> Under HB 481, a person could file a right to know complaint with the Ombudsman for a $25 fee instead of filing a lawsuit in Superior Court. So that's less money right out the gate, right? Because it's already going to cost more just to file a lawsuit, let alone the cost of lawyers and time and everything else. So That's like 30 seconds of lawyer time, uh, that $25 (laughs) fee. So So the ombudsman would have the power to waive the fee even if the person couldn't even afford $25. And their complaint would include their original request for information or meeting access to the government agency or official, and then also the agency or official's response, which if they're filing a complaint, the response was most likely, yeah, we're not going to provide that for whatever reason. So the government agency or official would then have 20 days to respond with any information justifying their refusal. 
you know, for example, it might be a public safety issue, like it's it's cybersecurity plans and they don't want those to be public, or it could be a privacy issue. Maybe someone wants specific pupil information, student data, you know, and so obviously you need to protect individual student privacy. So maybe they'll provide any sort of background like that. The ombudsman would have power to call hearings and interviews, request information, and then ultimately order a government agency official to grant access under the right to know law. And the ombudsman would have 30 days to sort of do this due diligence investigation and make their final ruling. Either the individual or the government agency could appeal the ombudsman's ruling in superior court. So this doesn't block right to know stuff from the courts. It just gives you this $25 fee sort of outside the court step if you prefer. The governor would appoint the ombudsman, which the executive council would approve, just like any other appointment. And then the ombudsman would have to be a lawyer. So it can't just be some random Joe who (laughs) thinks he knows a lot about right to know. Okay. So long story short, the right to know ombudsman would basically be a lawyer who makes a decision on releasing government records or not releasing those records under the right to know law instead of making people go to court. Bingo. And supporters of the right to know ombudsman argue this will be faster and more cost effective for resolving right to know complaints. So not only will this improve government transparency and citizens access, but it will also lower costs for government agencies that might otherwise have to pay to defend themselves in court. So ideally, win-win. Notably, Maine has had a similar public access ombudsman since 2012. So we've seen another state doing this for about a decade now and there haven't been major problems. Sure, and obviously, as with every issue we cover here, not everybody loves the idea. So opponents of this bill are concerned about the cost to run the office, especially if there's a flood of complaints. At that point, the state would either have to pay to increase the size of the office, or it would take longer and longer to resolve any complaint. So those opponents of HB 41 have suggested some alternatives. So for example, increase the penalty for illegally denying right to know requests. So basically get out that stick for any government agencies or officials who are blocking right to know. Alternatively, similarly, if citizens are flooding offices with frivolous right to know requests, you could create penalties for them. And so the idea is, all right, instead of maybe creating this new office, we just punish people for not following the right to know law. Right. Well, either way, uh, if you think that New Hampshire should have a right to know ombudsman or you're concerned about some of these unintended consequences and costs, or if you have any other opinion on the matter, you have a chance this Tuesday, March 8th, to share that opinion with state senators. The Senate Judiciary Committee is holding a public hearing in room 100 of the State House at 1.15 p.m. that you can attend and share your thoughts. But if you can't attend the public hearing in person, you can still register your opinion online. So go to the legislature's homepage, which is gencourt, G-E-N-C-O-U-R-T, dot state, dot N-H, dot U-S. Scroll down and click the Senate Remote Sign-In link. Select the date of the hearing, March 8th, the committee hearing the bill, Judiciary, and the bill number, HB 481. From there, you can share who you are and what your opinion is. All right, and that means we have arrived at that time in the segment. It is only in New Hampshire. Anna, what have you got for us? I want to talk a little about the laws governing New Hampshire towns. So here's a mini civics lesson. In New Hampshire, towns can only make laws about the subjects that the state specifically says they can make laws about. That's different than other states where towns can make any laws so long as it's not prohibited in state law. That's called home rule when towns can basically do whatever they want unless the state tells them not to. And then in New Hampshire, we have Dillon's Law. 
So towns can only write rules or laws, I should say, if the state says that's okay, you're allowed to write laws about that. So that's a little background. Um, there are I didn't know other there deal- was a name for that part, by the way. I, yeah. knew, I knew about home rule, but I didn't know there was like a name for the opposite of home rule. Dylan's law. Dylan's I'm law. I'm sorry to share with you. I do not know the origin. Who Dylan was. Who Dylan was and why he really wanted to limit what towns can do. Stay tuned. Maybe it'll be another only in New Hampshire segment, but let's get to the fun part. So RSA 3139 lays out exactly what sort of laws towns can make in New Hampshire. A lot of stuff on that list makes sense, regulating noise, garbage collections, caring for parks, libraries, so on. But then there are these delightfully specific parts. So for example, New Hampshire towns are allowed to regulate the conduct of roller skating rinks, Hmm. which goes back to that time of moral panic about how roller skating rinks were just dens of iniquity. But that's not the one I want to talk about. RSA 3139 also lets town regulate, and I quote, the retail display and accessibility of martial arts weapons, including throwing starts, throwing darts, nunchakus, <laughs> blowguns, or any other objects designed for use in the martial arts that are capable of being used as a lethal or dangerous weapon. And I, well, the first time I countered this a few years ago, I was like, this is one of those laws that just you can tell there's, there's a, a story, story here. <laughs> like, they got very specific about the darts and the blowguns and the nunchaku and the throwing stars. Someone had a very specific experience. So I did some digging, and it turns out there was a problem on Hampton Beach back around 2010 with people buying blow dart guns on the beach strip and then firing them at people just at random, like from their cars. So there was this really, I I went back and read the bill testimony today to refresh my memory. And it's from their cars, from their cars. So this this is like a a road rage thing with you. No, no, more like a drive by blow dart shooting. Oh my gosh. It was this one particular, one incident in particular got a lot of press. And so there was a couple in Hampton who were uh, doing some like landscaping or cleanup on the beach, something like that. Beautifying, I believe was the, the verb, beautifying. Mm-hmm. And a car with Rhode Island plates drove it's always past. We're always Rhode Island. My sister lives in Rhode Island. Love you, sister. Still think <laughs> your state is not awesome. So sorry, New Hampshire love. Got it. We got to keep going to stay first. So this car was driving by them with Rhode Island plates, and someone leaned out the window and blew a four inch metal blow dart at this poor couple and it lodged in the guy's shoulder blade like if that had landed elsewhere it could have popped a lung or god only knows what else and of course at the time the wife testified and she was like i was terrified and rage because i didn't know if it was poisonous which to be fair like when in your life do you just randomly get hit with a blow dart it's like it's only happens in movies so in new hampshire it is now legal for towns to regulate where these things can be sold. You you always, you know, you always kind of t- got to take your life in your own hands when you're uh, going to stroll Hampton Beach. And this is just one more example. You know, it's it's a great time, but you just never know what what could literally come flying at you, you know, so. Hampton Beach definitely has, especially, you know, I know over 2020s summer too, they, they had the whole thing where they were increasing staff down there because it was like everyone was swarming the beach because they were like let us out of our houses (laughs) and it just got so crazy my husband spent many years living right on hampton beach and uh, i i definitely miss that that condo that he had but on the other hand 
do not miss, do not miss the crazies. But that's where the good stories come from, right? I mean, like exactly. blow darts are horrible. And, and, and the good laws. And, uh, and eventually. the good laws. I mean, <laughs> we would not be sitting here today having this really interesting policy conversation about whether towns should be allowed to regulate blow darts and throwing stars. I really hope somebody spoke against that bill uh, when it was. <laughs> when it was. Um, well, actually, interestingly enough, there was some concern, first of all, about would this infringe like on second amendment issues? So there was some, con- so <laughs> no right one was like, a blow dart. <laughs> no one was like, yes, you should definitely be able to buy a blow dart gun anywhere. I didn't see anyone like that, but there was some concern about how this was written to protect people's rights with weapons in general and self-defense. And then of course, also some martial arts people that were like, well, we just want to make sure that, you know, when your kids are practicing with their nunchucks, that's still legal, which by the way, when you think about it, I feel like kids are way more likely in this day and age to own nunchucks than adults. I feel like I, I know several children who own nunchucks and I, <laughs> I don't know a single adult who knows the nunchucks, but that's that's a story for another day. See, who says New Hampshire policy can't be fun and interesting, right? Well, anyway, this wraps up our episode for today. So uh, you can find more information and episodes at citizenscount.org. And we'd also like to thank Franklin Pierce University for producing and the Granite State News Collaborative for hosting. Our theme music is composed by me, Mike Dunbar. And lastly, we thank you for giving us a listen and thinking about how you can be part of what makes New Hampshire by the people, for the people. 